1: Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies on iTunes and via the web. I'm Nick Cheeseman, a research fellow in the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific. Today I have the pleasure of talking with Alicia Turner, an associate professor at York University in Toronto, about saving Buddhism. The Impermanence of Religion in Colonial Burma, published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2014. Saving Buddhism tells the story of how Burmese Buddhists reimagined their lives, their religious practice, and politics in the period of 1890 to 1920 following the fall of Mandalay to the British. Whereas many histories narrate the modern anti colonial struggle in Burma from the 1920s onwards, Turner shows how in the preceding decades, Buddhists were working to navigate, explain, and respond to the rapidly changing conditions in their country through the use of familiar tropes of Buddhist decline and revival, often for new and innovative purposes, and with unfamiliar consequences. By juxtaposing the dynamic Buddhist concept of sasana with the bureaucratic colonial category of religion, she explains how projects to bring Buddhist practice into alignment with colonial government failed and how new types of conflict emerged, and with them, new identity politics and interest groups. I recommend saving Buddhism not only to students of religion and history, but also to anyone following what is going on in Burma or Myanmar today. As Turner herself writes, The current 969 movement for Buddhist chauvinism and the murderous drives to avenge imagined harms to Buddhism are no less motivated by an interpretation of the moral defense of sasana than were the early 20th century Buddhist associations. There's so much more to Saving Buddhism than we could cover in the interview, and I hope that our discussion will make you interested to find a copy of the book. Today on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, I'm talking with Alicia Turner, author of Saving Buddhism, the Impermanence of Religion in Colonial Burma. Alicia, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Would
1: you like to begin by saying a bit about your background and how you ended up writing this book?
0: Um, yeah, I'm really pleased to be part of this series. It's actually interesting to be invited to be part of New Books in Southeast Asia. Um, I just listened to the to the interview with Eric Braun on his book, uh, The Birth of Insight, which is in the New Books in Buddhism, um, and I'm... Really, I was hopeful to write a book that would be useful to people, um, and speaks to people in a number of different groups. So scholars of religion and scholars of Buddhism. But more and more, I enjoy talking to and get a lot out of my conversations with Southeast Asianists and historians of Southeast Asia. So I'm hoping that people are going to see a book that is partially about Buddhism, but also useful to folks in lots of other places. Um, so I come from a spot where I'm, uh, trained as a historian of religions and, uh, from there to colonial Burma was an interesting path a little bit. So as a scholar, I knew first I was interested in the study of religion. Um, I was interested in religion because I was convinced that religion offers some of the most robust and powerful modes of, of ideology, sort of the those modes of, of culture and power that are best at naturalizing their discourses. And I was interested in taking those apart and understanding how religion operates in that way. Um, and from there I knew I was interested in colonialism as a particular mode of power and interested in Buddhism as a form of religion that challenges sets of assumptions we have about religion. So in some ways I start out as a historian of religion and a scholar of religion, um, but from that moment became very happily a Southeast Asianist and uh, glad to have my foot more and more in that camp. Um, So my graduate training was in the study of religion and study of Buddhism, um, but then I came to Burma and uh, sort of fell in love with the place in many, many ways. Uh, So the things I talk about in some chapters of the book about education and the perceptions of very high literacy rates were things that I in some ways found myself st- found to be true when I arrived in Burma the first time because it is a place where people love books. It's a people place where people love history, the place where people love talking about history in books and sitting in tea shops for hours. And you can imagine exactly how alluring this is to a young graduate student. Um, and it's also a place that I found where uh, the history, late nineteen thirty 20th, and 21st century history is driven by student movements, um, and that was particularly intriguing to me as well. So the combination with the study of religion and the study of Buddhism, Burma just became the right place to be. So.
1: And you've mentioned already the period that you're looking at, uh, 1890 to 1920. Could yeah. you explain a bit about that period and give us a bit of context before we go into how you've organized the book?
0: Um, yeah. So I'm interested in the colonial period but that's a very long period in Burma right that stretches back to 1824 um and and so but there was a specific question for me in this moment after 1885 when the british with, with the fall of mandalay and the fall of the of the lineage of, of Burmese kings um there seemed to be something else happening. There seemed to be something more right around the turn of the 20th century, so by 1890 and up to 1920. Um, most of what's, what had been written prior to this on Burmese history in the colonial period is written either longer political histories that sort of focus on the, those earlier moments, or the cultural histories are really written about the period from 1920 on. They're written from the perspective of thinking about nationalism and nationalist independent movements. Um, and when you start to read those narratives, something comes out very quickly. Um, there's a sort of irony about what has been written about 1890 to 1920, and that most of the secondary sources you get, both in Burmese and in English, will repeat the same very specific narrative about the prehistory of the nationalist independence movement. And they'll list basically five or six Buddhist organizations. um sometimes in exactly the same order sometimes in exactly you know very clear that these narratives come from each other um and then they'll say these were all very fine and good but really they were just they were all just a cover for the political work of nationalism um and when i was reading this you know just looking at the the secondary literature to start to work on this period and think about what i wanted to do i was just struck one on how historians who agreed on very little else in the rest of their work completely agreed and gave you the same narrative about this period and about the Buddhist associations in particular. And two, that what clearly were interesting and complex organizations um, were described as simply a very a facade, a very thin facade for nationalist work, and that Buddhism was only ever a cover for political nationalist independence work. And I didn't buy it, was the answer. Um, I was convinced there had to be something else going on, so I sort of threw myself into the sources, particularly the newspapers and the journals published in this point and any organizational records I could get my hands on, and found a much more rich world, um, much more much more productive than what had been there. Um, so that's how I got to that period in some levels. Um, Similarly, the questions about the nation um, and nationalism sort of had driven me forward. I think one of the wonderful things about working in Southeast Asia uh, and being a historian of Southeast Asia is that we've done, that, that there's a history of really smart and insightful work on the history of nation and national identity. Um, so obviously Benedict Anderson's work, Tong Chai's work, Penny Edwards' work, I would say are really important folks on this. Um, and I. Th- I think for most of mainland Southeast Asia, we talk about the history of the nation and we're pretty critical of it in certain ways. Um, you know, we, we dismantle and look at the ways in which the concept of nation has been historically developed. But what bothered me as well within this um, is sort of the the challenge put forward by, by President Duara that the more we talked about the nation... Um, The more we studied the history of national identities and the ways in which culture was able to produce that, we left the nation at the center of our histories. And we did what nationalists do, which is to write the history of the nation as though it existed, as though it was some sort of natural entity um, that could be projected back into history too, but also... We left it as a mode of belonging um, that remained unquestioned um, in its primacy. So what I really wanted to do was to see what else was there. Um, what other modes of identity and belonging were out there that weren't simply limited to the concept of nation? Um, what other ways of thinking about identity and belonging were operative? Um, so what I went to do when I went to the sources is is to think about how people were talking about what was important to them, uh, how they were talking about how they viewed themselves and how they were connected to each other, and what sort of discourses were operative in that way. Um, so this sort of, the question of nation led me to sort of push aside the, the discourse of nationalism um, and to start to look at what local discourses were going on there. Um, so this is, this is sort of what got me into the sets of problems I was working on um, as I got into the research.
1: And you say on page three of the book, as against um, the the approach you've just described in the extant literature, that if I can just quote you for a moment, uh, this book explores how a Buddhist framework for understanding the colonial condition enabled Burmese Buddhists in the decades surrounding the turn of the 20th century to contest colonial categories that impinged on their lives and ultimately to renegotiate the terms of colonialism. Can you unpack that for us and perhaps introduce the three formative discourses that are really at the backbone of the book.
0: Yeah. Um, I think I come from a premise that, you know, leading up to that quote, it was partly trying to pull apart and say that some of the analytical categories that we tend to come forward with, the sort of theoretical analytical categories we want to use to analyze history too often become reified in our own discourses, right? So we assume categories like nation not often, that's more criticized, but categories like like religion, we assume to be fixed and useful for analytical purposes because we know what they are. Um, and I would like to challenge that. In fact I think it's more likely that the categories, even those that we use, were probably themselves the product of negotiations were happening at this time and continue into the present moment. So we need to be careful to look at these categories as themselves points of contention and points that of uh, categories whose boundaries were being negotiated continuously um, and so set them aside as not necessarily useful for analytical purposes. Um, so what I'm saying in this, you know, in that quote is that when I when I went back to the sources and tried to figure out what was important to people in these movements, the category of sasana is clearly at the forefront. Um, so the idea of the, the sasana is sort of briefly said, the Buddhist dispensation and the whole of the Buddhist teachings, um, which is understood... It, in a long history of the polytextual tradition and then certainly in all of the vernacular traditions, understood to be impermanent. The idea being that the Buddha offers his teachings when the Buddha is, is teaching and present on earth, but at the moment... Um, after that, they slowly begin to slip away, slowly begin to be forgotten, and the practices that are created then slowly begin to fall apart until eventually there will be no more Buddhist sasana on earth, and that prepares the moment for the next Buddha. Um, but this category, this idea of what the sasana is, what constitutes the, the dispensation of the Buddha, the whole, the body and the life of the Buddha's teachings was the key category that that people, that Burmese people were talking about at this time, were worried about at this time. And in fact, the framework that comes out of the Pali and the commentarial and then the vernacular tradition with regard to sasana offers a set of ideas both for understanding history, and for understanding any particular moment in history that can be interpreted in lots of ways, and and folks latched on to these ideas. This this is a mechanism for trying to figure out all of these changes that were happening at the colonial moment, and particularly by about 1890, in which you have both you know changes in government, but changes in culture, changes in econo- economy, changes in social structure happening all at the same time. Um, So Sasana provided a resource for that, that offered a framework for folks to think through what was happening in their world. At the same moment, it offers a resource for people to think about um, how to respond to that set of problems, how to construct the world that they want, because if there's a concern that Sasana is declining... um, You certainly don't want to be the Buddhist on whose watch the sasana falls apart. Um, You have a responsibility, a moral responsibility, to make sure that the sasana is preserved in your lifetime. Um, And so this is what engages people. It's not just the idea that all of these changes seem to be uh, a a reference to a decline that's predicted within Buddhist texts that's understood in a Buddhist framework. This change can be mapped onto the set of decline, but also that... This narrative decline gives you points of action and a purpose for what you should be doing to prevent that decline from happening any faster. Um, so that's the ways in which I see the discourse responding in certain ways to the, to the colonial problem. Um, and then as I got further and further into it, I, as you allude to, there's, there's three discourses I find really operative in this time period and that I want to see how they're evolving, the ways in which they're being contested and reshaped. So even as I talk about a history of a discourse of sasana, um, it's important to understand that, unlike a Buddhist discourse, which would say that the Buddhist teachings are fixed, they are the same thing that they have been for all of this eon, a historical perspective would say that what constitutes the sasana at any given moment in the, in the discourse of Buddhists in any given place is locally constituted, right? What the meaning of sasana at, at that place has been produced in that moment. And it's going to change. It's going to be contested. Different elements are going to be added or pulled apart. So sasana is going to come to evolve as a category and a concept. And it certainly does through the actions of Buddhists in colonial Burma. Um, and I'm interested in where are those contests? How does sasana change? What does it mean for different movements to come to shape it and how does that shape other things? So if Buddhism for me isn't a fixed object here, Sasana certainly isn't a fixed object, it's a, it's a moving target, um, and a place in which ideas are contested and produced. In the same ways, that the second, so sasana is the first of those three categories. I'm really interested in those first of those three discourses that I see in motion, and the motion of those categories drive a lot of what's happening. The second is what I call the concept of of moral community. Um, Again, trying to step away from a framework and a a, a focus on nation, as I looked more and more at things, I felt I could see that Buddhists in Burma were creating a set of bonds and connections between each other in which they perceive the connections between different Buddhists as different than nation but also different than the the pre-colonial moment. Um, And as they're working to preserve the sasana, the work and both the the work to preserve sasana and the moral obligation that they feel, um, the obligation that They need to preserve sasana through their own actions, through their own um, moral choices, becomes a set of bonds that connects them. Um, they become connected in this larger moral project of preserving Sasana within Burma in this period. And so I come to think about this sets of connections as developing a mode of identity um, that I find useful for, for thinking as a changing mode of identity, one that's going to change in terms of nationalism later, but also can give us a model for thinking about how identity is, is constructed locally through practice and discourse. And then the third category or the third uh, discourse that I see in motion, that I see contested in this moment, um, is the category of religion itself. Um, And so very few folks in Southeast Asia will probably know about debates and theoretical discussions in the uh, the discipline of the study of religion about, about the category of religion, what constitutes religion. But it's a pretty, it's an important debate that's happening, um, and it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, sort of been put forward and clearly put forward that, that religion isn't a fixed category, um, that it is the product of certain, con- uh, contests, usually in Europe, um, the, the production of an idea of the world as divided into a binary of religious and secular is a particularly specific European contact, a construct from a certain period, but and, and you know, there's a there's a mode of working in the study of religion to say that's a colonial construct that's simply imposed on the colonial world. Um, that's way too simple for what's going on. And, in fact, the more complex and more interesting work is to say, so how is this category of religion constituted in any given place in any given time? And why is it constituted that way? Um, and that's what I then became interested in, in looking at what was the movements that are going on in the colonial period in Burma, in that... If sasana is in flux because, because it's considered, because the sasana is considered in decline, um, the work to preserve the sasana goes to construct this discourse, this category of sasana. If identity is in flux, in some moments, um, the, the interactions with British colonial authorities, um, British sort of, uh, the, the cultural, uh, Aspects of colonialism bring this category of religion, um, in which Burmese now have to be able to speak in a colonial language of religion, but they don't bring it in a hegemonic form in the idea that there's a single European or British concept of religion that is imposed. In fact, all of our colonial actors bring something slightly different in what they mean by religion. They're negotiated between different levels and different colonial actors themselves, and Burmese contest that to their benefit. They contest what religion is going to mean in any given moment and the ways in which what is and isn't defined as religion give you some space to negotiate um, autonomy under colonial structures or to negotiate exactly the limits of colonial power. So those are the three... Um, sort of, sort of things that I see in motion that I keep my eye on as I work through the through the content of this of the Buddhist movements in this time period, and then it, each one sort of works in motion in each of the chapters as I go through. Um, so that's the structure I offer, and and what I what I'm trying to explore as the book goes forward.
1: The juxtaposition between uh, sasana or Dathana and religion is one that I think will, will interest many listeners because conventionally today the Sasanai is translated as religion. Exactly. Perhaps we can just dwell on it for a moment longer through the story that you tell of the Duttamata and the um, mm-hmm. um, prominent monk who comes to Yangon in 1887 and um, how the relationship between this, the Two notions, Sasana and religion, um, can be understood um, through this event.
0: Um, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting story and an interesting moment, right? So after the fall of Theba, and which is sort of depicted in Burmese history very often as a sort of as a sort of large pageant. Um, there's, of course, insurgency going on, there's conflict going on, and some of the neg- British colonial negotiations about how to put down this insurgency, how to create a sort of more stable state, actually happen through, uh, negotiations with the Thudama Tatanabai. And, um, uh, and eventually he's invited down to Rangoon, and there's this fascinating um, debate as to what to do. Um, different levels of the British colonial government have different opinions about this. On one level there's an idea that they would like um, at one level, there's an idea that that they're looking for stability within the country. On another level, there's a perceived problem, and historically, I I don't perceive it as a problem. But uh, there was a perceived problem that the Burmese kings had been making minor offerings to, the to the Chinese emperor, and an idea that those needed to continue for some geopolitical reasons, but could not be given obviously by the British colonial government. So there's a proposal. Well, we need this dealt with. Why don't we make the Thathanabine? the rep- the, cl- the cultural representative of Burma you can act on our behalf and this will solve the problem. These are fairly high up levels, probably negotiations happening certainly in India or in London. Um, when that proposal comes down to uh, colonial officials on, on the ground in Rangoon, um, they see that as the potential for the answer to a different problem, which is the problem of insurgency that's going on. And they're looking for pacification. They're looking for ways in which to bring a populace be convinced that the, the colonial government is better. And they say the idea of recognizing a thought than a bind sounds wonderful. This sounds like an excellent negotiator on our behalf. If, if we show ourselves to recognize, uh, this Buddhist head, that will sort of pacify things. Um they but there's clearly differences of what constitutes religion and not religion here because officially the policy is non-interference with religious affairs. Officially since the 1850s, uh, British colonial presence in India and Burma is being annexed to India at this point um, is is that they can't be involved in religious affairs. And yet, here at all these different levels, what they're looking to do is to take the the head of one of the, the largest uh, um, monastic organization and bring them in as an adjunct for the colonial state. So their ideas of secularism are probably not as cut and dry as, as ours. Um, the Thothanabine has his own ideas about this. Right? Uh he at the Tudamathanabain. And we need to be clear that he wasn't at the head of all of Buddhism prior to this. Um and in fact it's only the British who will ever construct that position as you know, they'll call him the the Archbishop of Burma and all sorts of things, which are very much a construction. Um Alexei Kerchenko has a very good article on exactly this. Um but he has his own concerns, right? And his concerns are with preservation of sasana, um, with understanding his own position uh, within the, the networks. Um, and he agrees to to be recognized within this. And yet uh, we get, you know, even more debate about what that's going to mean, you know, it, the monks who come together to discuss whether the Thantanabayan should be recognized in Rangoon say things like, well, yes, it's, yes, you could recognize him. Um, but certainly, uh, we can't have, you know, we're not interested in any relationship with the Chinese because they're not, they're not orthodoxy Buddhist to us. We're not interested. Um, that wouldn't be useful. Um, and in fact, if you say that you, uh, have a secularist position via which you don't interfere with religious affairs, by not interfering you're kind of supporting us so we can actually say that the british colonial government is still kind of the patron of buddhism and that will save the sasana so we're okay with that um, and we get all sorts of fascinating hybrids of what where you know what's going to constitute religion within this because you know, whether it's an object that can or the, the colonial state can or can't interact with what's going to constitute preservation of sasana um, and so the, these interactions become more and more complex. And as you just simply read through the colonial, colonial archival files and you read through the newspapers that are happening at the time, you begin to see that there's multiple definitions of both religion and, thos- and sasana being offered around all of this I, I should probably intervene and say that unfortunately i was trained first as a buddhist studies scholar and so i usually tend to use the pali sasana for the Burmese Dathanā. Um, they are completely interchangeable they mean the same thing um, but but i i opt usually for the pali in this uh settings so
1: thanks for the clarification uh, let's Go to the theme of decline Which you've raised a number of points already And it emerges as Constantly throughout the book And one of the points That you make very powerfully Is that the notion of decline And then of revival, of purification Is um, part Of the Buddhist tradition going back Centuries But in the period with which You're specifically concerned It develops in perhaps we can say unique and certainly fascinating ways. So what was the problem of decline in the period with which the book is concerned and how did the Buddhists in Burma respond?
0: So, yeah, exactly. you're exactly right. In the sense that what, when I read Burmese history, I read um, one of the major driving forces in Burmese history is the idea of Sasana Reform, Tatana Reform, in which different kings come forward or different monastic figures come forward to say... In one way or another, the tatana, the sasana is in particular threat in this moment, whether it be that, that we perceive the monks to be particularly lax, or we perceive this king to be not particularly a good defender of, of, of the sasana, and we need to intervene. Um, and the mechanism for intervening often, sometimes is a reordination lineage for monks, sometimes it is a, it's a king going out and making major donations. Um, at each of these moments, the idea, the the, pro, the the overarching sort of uh, cosmological narrative, the idea that sasana is potentially in decline. The construct that those in political power have a responsibility for sasana. Well, that is to say the kings have a responsibility for the sasana and the monks have a responsibility for sasana and that there are interventions that can be made in the world that will help preserve the sasana. So if you look at, you know, inscriptions or, um, other sources, often kings will say, I have done this so that the sasana will live for 5,000 years. And in this chapter, I go into the history. It's not simply, In the text, that five thousand years is the the necessarily decided span of the Buddhist saṣana. There are lots of different debates about how long it will or won't last, but but throughout Burmese history, the idea of reforming the saṣana has been a major um, agent within. Burmese history because once you want to go and you have the justification of preserving the sasana, then you can make major social interventions, right? Either you can say all of these monks are lax and we need to purge the sangha of all of these lax monks, i.e. take them out of the non-productive group of people and put them into the group of people who now have to have jobs, which has economic and political implications. Um, or we need to make major donations and renovations, which again has economic and political um, implications. So a contra a, a, some a perspective of writing about colonialism that wants to talk about colonialism as a radical break, I would say the idea of preserving the sasana um, uh, as as a mechanism for social change in Burma is is completely a connection pre colonial and and uh, well pre colonial post colonial but certainly into this colonial moment and that that Buddhists at, in the 1890s are doing exactly what their forefathers have done. They've preserved the sasana as a mechanism for reconstructing their political and social worlds. Um, but it's slightly different now. Um, what matters then is different is, one, we don't have a king. Um, two, we have a non-Buddhist political entity in head that ha- has to be negotiated around. We have to begin to figure out how to do this. Um... And so the concern about the decline of Buddhism, right at 1885. Um, so the, the chapter you're discussing uh, about the decline is a chapter in which I I pull out my card of being a bit of a textual scholar and I, I lay out some of the polytexts that do, to discuss this. But unlike uh, uh, some of my colleagues who are sort of deeply textual scholars, I'm more interested to know if I can know who was reading these texts when and where so if you look at 1885 we have a, a Russian Pali scholar who goes into Mandalay and he's talking to the monks and he's collecting texts and he's asking people what's important and I can know that he collects a text, a couple of texts specifically about the decline of the Sasana and in fact I can realize that he got the most important text that gets translated later about the decline of the Sasana from the home of a minister who's been very important in um, in uh, eventually in the Buddhist associations that are going to be the major theme of this book. So I know that these are the people who care we are very concerned about the decline of the sasana. And in fact, the monks he talks to in Mandalay have very explicit things about the idea that the fall of the monarchy is tied to the decline of the sasana. Um, so I'm interested in how they read this text about the decline of the sasana. And the key moment in the text is the idea that, um, that what's going to be la- lost um, is the teachings, the pariyatti? So there's, there's a, there's a, about, five different things that we lost of the Buddhist sasana, the practices and the, the behavior and the morals of the monks and everything else. But eventually, you know, what we're really worried about losing is the text themselves and knowledge of the content of the text. So monks memorizing text helps preserve the sasana. But if you read this passage um, about what happens when you lose the text and, and the, the most important text to preserve within that is the Abhidhamma, um, you can also read it for content about what you should do to make that this isn't happening. So we get um, signs, you can look, if you, if you read the, interpret the text, you can read it to say, here's the signs. If you want to know if the sasana is declining, here's the signs. You could have kings who aren't very good Buddhists. You could have ministers and politicians who aren't very good Buddhists. You can have people in villages who aren't, who are very immoral. Um, and eventually you're going to have economic downfall that happens out of this, and the economic downfall is going to mean that you can't support monks, and monks won't memorize texts. So, so I take that text and then I say, you know, how is it that these people in these Buddhist associations that I know are reading this text, what are they seeing in the world around them that they would read as these signs of decline and what do they choose to do about it? Um, and what they choose to do about it is very much to form associations. Um, and it becomes a difference in that it's the lay people who take the mantle on themselves for preserving the sasana. So no longer is it necessarily the work of the king, who's obviously not there, nor the work of the monks. But lay people internalize this responsibility for the preservation of sasana. And in that internalization, they produce a new identity for themselves out of this. So they they produce associations that do different things. Um, if the, preserva- the preservation of the text is important, then uh, clearly they go out and they sponsor the monks that preserve the text. Um, they make sure that there are still teaching and pariyati monks out there, because most of those donations had been cut off um, with the loss of the monarchy. They create new associations for teaching. Then they create associations for lay people to learn texts. They create associations to sponsor poly exams, um, and they work with the colonial government. To create colonial uh, polyexaminations, and then eventually they work to condense things so that even lay people can can memorize and preserve the texts themselves. Um, so I sort of work through the, the in this chapter from the texts on decline to the practice of what you actually do to respond to this problem of decline, and the ways in which it becomes a lay problem, becomes a problem for for not just an elite either, but for an everyday person. Um,
1: You you do emphasize that early on um, many of the people who are at the forefront of this movement are prominent lay people uh, Mm -hmm. coming out as champions. Can you say something about who those people were and then how they connected to or through their associations to other parts of the society and effectively built up a a movement that becomes in in some ways quite radical? For instance, you discussed the role of, of women Um, In these associations, in a way that a a role that they did not have previously in religious life.
0: Yeah, I, I, I mean, we are talking to a certain extent an elite in some of these, but. Often, it's not those people who would necessarily have been particularly, not, not ministers under the former monarchy, and not necessarily people who would have been in these positions before. So, for some of the poly associations, or the major associations that, that donate rice, these are usually merchants. Um who come together and it's merchants who pool their money who have also seen the economic implications of the loss of patronage for the monks uh, or the loss of patronage for Buddhism. But they come together and form uh, merchants associations and those are the ones who begin organizing themselves to preserve the texts uh, or or to have organizations for to support the monks who preserve the texts. They have organizations that make major rice donations to monks um and these sorts of things. But then as time goes on, we move more and more towards a broader body of people. And particularly what's interesting is often it's this category of clerks. Um, and a and a clerk in the colonial era, on some levels, you know, those from a European perspective might have thought of as a lowly position. Um, but actually, it was an aspirational position. So, if you look at the the discussions of education, often very much what uh, what parents want for their children is to get a good enough education and perhaps a good enough uh, education in English to aspire to the level of being a government clerk and so or government or business clerk. And those were those were positions of a bit of mobility in the sense that. You know, they had access to different worlds, um, and they were coming to be trained in different sets of knowledges. So, bureaucratic knowledges for organizing themselves. So, in this uh, movement, this shift from responsibility for the sasana lying really with a king um, and and absolute political elites there, and with the the sangha, the monks, and and really an elite of the monks. Um, we get a shift now to. These clerks, these more ordinary people, also school teachers, are very important. And in school teachers, again, being trained in sort of bureaucratic knowledges um, become very important for these new associations as they rise up. Uh, there is a gendered aspect to this, in that there are, there are eventually some organizations, mostly for women, within this, um, with with one exception, and I'll talk about in a second. Um, most of the major organizations still have men at the head of the organizations, but then if you begin to look at who are the major donors, women are deeply important donors within this. So they have a certain um, ways in which they're coming to shape this. The other really specifically and uh, set of organizations where you can see the shift on in hierarchies most explicitly is to look at the preservation of the texts through Pali examinations, in particular the preservation of Abhidhamma. So if under Mindan we have the you know the recitation of the whole of the of the Pali Canon and its preservation, it's the elite of the elite monks. So male senior monastics who at the sort of top of all of our social hierarchies in Burma who would be perceived as those who are able of preserving and memorizing the texts in the colonial period lady saidda uh, the abhidhamma scholar and eventually meditation that uh, scholar that the Eric Braun writes quite about he offers a set of texts that offer a condensation of all of the abhidhamma into a short poem um, as it's advertised in the to- uh, in this time period a short poem that even uh, young women could memorize and that's exactly what happens and um, these, these organizations flower across the entire, uh, colonial province. Um, there are organizations in every small town. Um, but the Abhidhamma associations for memorizing this Abhidhamma poem that Lady Sayadaw sets up are probably the most prominent. And, the colonial contemporary records and newspapers um, are very clear that, that it is young women who love these associations, that wherever Lady Sayedhar goes to have examinations and the memorization of the abhidhamma text, it is usually young women who are dominant there. Um, and so all of a sudden you've gone from elite male monastics as having the responsibility for preserving the, the Pariyati text and particularly the abhidhamma. Um, and saving the sasana by memorizing it themselves to teenage girls, um, a, you know, the exact opposite on your gendered, your age, your gendered hierarchies, your age hierarchies, your social um, hierarchies of all statuses, right? Lay, female, um, young. And so... If the sasana is something that can be preserved by teenage girls remembering a poem that condenses its knowledge, something has shifted not just within society, but also in the concept of what constitutes the sasana. Um, what constitutes the practice of keeping the sasana in the world. And so within each of these organizations, there is a sort of, I'm cautious about the word democratization, um, but there is certainly a popularization of what it means to preserve the sasana and who can be engaged in this project that I think comes to shape a different, eventually comes to shape a different sense of identity and connections throughout Burmese society, but also definitely a different sense of how you engage Buddhism, um, because the lay associations continue throughout the 20th century. You can, you can go find a lot of the associations that I write about um, in Burma right now, um, and they are important um, up to the con- uh, contemporary period in many, many ways that many scholars who follow Burma right now would understand. So,
1: This uh, point we'll come to, I think, yeah. in, in a few minutes, Sure. Before we do that, um, we've addressed the, the role of young women, schoolboys. How do they feel into <laughs> this story? And um, and what's the relationship between schoolboys and ethical projects? <laughs>
0: um, yeah, everyone is concerned about the schoolboys in this period. If you read the newspapers, the thing that seems to, to worry both European colonial officials and Burmese Buddhists uh, who write to the newspapers, who are organized in these associations, is that young boys are just not good anymore. Um, they used to know how to be good and proper and polite and moral, and they've lost everything. They're not doing what they should do anymore. And on some levels, this is one uh the sort of things that old people complain about young people in just about every era and just about every culture. But it's particularly prominent at this point for a handful of reasons, because society is going through a lot of transformations, right? If in prior to the 1860s, education um, was broad and happened for lots of aspects of society, but happened mainly in the monasteries um, and mainly with young boys being taught to read with preparation for their ordination, supplemented for girls with house schools, but all very much focused on the same sort of reading as a practice of producing merit, reading as a practice of of preserving texts and Buddhism. You could move to a colonial school system in which you don't sit on the floor of the monastery and chant after the monk. You sit at a desk and you work with school books. Um, And the purpose of education uh, becomes instrumental. You're not reading simply uh, because reading produces merit and reading is is produce is is saving text. You're reading so that you can learn land measurement and mathematics and uh, geography and things like this. And that's. A Big transition, even the physical postures of what these uh, boys mostly was the discussion, um, how they changed and what they did, but also changes in their orientations. Um, you know, scholars of, of culture would certainly tell you that education is usually about transforming people's values and morals and orientations and the ways in which they view the world. And that was certainly true for both the monastery education and for the colonial schools and then for the Buddhist schools um, that were produced in response to these colonial schools. So the idea that they wanted to teach Buddhism, but Buddhism suddenly became a content they were going to teach so out of all this transition that's going on, not just in society but in education, then we get a worry about the morals of these schoolboys. They're off doing horrible things like um, using pea shooters and using very coarse language and not being resp- respectful to their elders um, and drinking and gambling um, and doing other things that are seen as particularly problematic. And the more you read about this absolute... Just deep concern and almost paranoia that, that people have lost their morals in this moment. The more it becomes clear that the concern about moral decline has something to do, not just with the colonial setting, but also to do with the status of the sasana. And in fact, a lot of the texts on morals, and at this moment we have a rise of preaching, so um, itinerant preachers, preachers will go out to different cities and give lectures, and almost all of this preaching is about morals and moral decline and what sort of moral reform we should have. And there's a handful of projects for moral reform. We have a project for vegetarianism. Um, We have a project against alcohol and against gambling. Um, We have a project for simply, you know, asking boys to be more respectful and to uh, to act in much more cultured ways in each of them they become very explicit which is to say that the decline of morals isn't about your individual karma you know, The the sermons or the discussions on morals will usually say, yes, this individual moral action has this karmic consequence for you, and you shouldn't do it because it has this karmic consequence. But usually that's a very quick discussion at the beginning. Then there's a much longer discussion about the problem of this moral decline. And the problem becomes not that your individual karma that will produce your next lifetime is is been harmed by this, but that your choice to eat meat or drink alcohol or act in unruly ways is actually bringing about the decline of the sasana as a whole. And so that the whole of Burmese Buddhists no longer being moral is both a sign that the sasana is declining. It's a sign that these colonial changes that make us feel very, that something is shifting under our feet are clearly a sign that the sasana is declining. But also they become a point of intervention then. If you choose to make yourself a more moral person, you're choosing to preserve the sasana. And by choosing to both interpret your actions as a reference to the whole of the sasana and to reform yourself in that way, you've made yourself the subject of a certain kind of subjectivity and a community. And what we get is people deeply engaged in this moral reform movement Shaping themselves, agreeing to a worldview that says that my choice to drink or not drink alcohol, my choice to uh, eat or not eat meat has repercussions for the whole of the Buddhist dispensation. And that I belong to a body of people who've agreed to reform ourselves. We have a certain responsibility for the, for the Buddhist sasana, right? That no longer lies with the kings or the monks, but me, a simple school teacher or a clerk or a villager, have an ability to transform the sasana by my own actions. So you're able to internalize into your own actions this responsibility. And this connection with everybody else who's responsible for the sasana. And this is where I make the argument that we have a different sense of community developing. You have a sense that we belong to a group of people. The we that exists here is we who are responsible for sasana. And sasana's decline or fall is reliant on us. It's reliant on our own reflection on our own actions. Um, and that we have an ability to save sasana by reforming ourselves. Um, and so the focus on boys, schoolboys, both in the education sector and the transformations that are happening there relative to the colonial government, but also particularly as a sort of forefront, as the front lines of transformation, but the front lines of moral reform for preservation of the sasana is, is what I think much of this discourse about the decline of, of, of the morals of schoolboys are. Um, and I think it's deeply tied to not just this, this larger project, but also to the creation of a sense of identity and moral community. Um, so, so people will even go to these moral reform things and make a pledge, a promise, um, not unlike a temperance pledge. And they're influenced by the larger Victorian morals movement that's happening. It's not, it's not that this is simply a Buddhist thing that happens in isolation. They're influenced by that, but it comes out in a very specifically Burmese and Buddhist way. Um, so I sort of see those things as connected to a sense of identity, and this moral community and the identity and belonging there isn't the exact same thing as nation. It will contribute to the idea of Burmese nationalism later, but it also exists separately. You can see often in Burmese history a belonging, a sense of, of who we are, that's isn't that's tied to, to the need to preserve sasana, but may or may not be exactly the same thing, or may or may not be tied to the concept of nation and nationalism.
1: Um, you've, you've used the word frontline a couple of times and that, and to me, evokes the increasingly combative character of, as, as we approach the 1920s, mm-hmm. of much of what is taking place in the space of um, the sasana and religion. Mm-hmm. Um, one, points on, one point on the frontline is the issue of culturally specific salutes and uh, (laughs) students also are a part of that controversy. Can you explain what it is briefly that I'm referring to? And from there, maybe move back to our earlier discussion about how Sasana negotiates the colonial category of religion.
0: Mm -hmm. So, um, it's a wonderful story. And, uh, I, I there, The history of students and student protest in Burma is a fascinating, fascinating topic, and it doesn't always get all of these smaller, earlier movements included. But there's a moment uh, at the colonial period in which we have a concern about uh boys being unruly, schoolboys, and particularly schoolboys who are who are in English teaching schools, government English teaching schools, And it's that colonial officials are think that these boys are unruly, and their their Burmese and their Buddhist context think that they're, they're unruly. So one of the solutions that the Director of public Instruction, the head of uh, the Education department, uh, puts forward is to say, "Well, we should have everybody salute in the morning. That would make them respectful and disciplined. Um, but he, I think, thinks he's being culturally sensitive to say we're not going to enforce a single culture on all these boys, but instead we will say that every boy who comes to the government school has to salute his teachers in, quote, um, a salute that comes from his own culture. Unfortunately, what seems like great cultural sensitivity, not necessarily associated with colonialism, turns out to be really problematic. Um, because whereas European boys in these classrooms are allowed to offer a military salute, um, uh, Chinese boys and Indian boys are allowed to offer, so I think a simple bow, um, what's expected out of the Burmese boys in, particularly in the Rangoon Collegiate School, which is going to become, you know, this is the theater for Rangoon College and this is going to lead up to Rangoon University, um, is expected to perform a full shikou. And if you know Burma, there are different modes of shikou. There are different modes of bowing down. But for the most part, it involves becoming prostrate on the floor and touching your head all the way to the floor in front of whoever you're performing this bow to. And this is what you do when you greet a monk. Um, this is what you do when, say, you greet uh, an, an elder that you have great respect for, so you're your grandparents. Um, it happens in lots many different contexts. Um so it certainly can happen in familial contexts, but I, I've, I've even observed it happening in context in, of patron-client relationships. So it's, it's common in Burmese uh, society. But the boys object, obviously. Uh, they are not willing to prostrate themselves in front of their European schoolmasters uh, when all of the rest of the kids in the class are simply performing a light bow. They say this is about subordination, um, and they're not willing to do it. But why they won't, aren't willing to do it is really interesting. The argument they make, and they take their argument to the newspapers, is that they're unwilling to perform a shikho because to shikho is a religious practice. It's performed to monks, to teachers, and to parents, but only to teachers that actually teach about Buddhism and about the sasana. It can't be performed to just any old teacher. And to perf- ask them to perform this kind of ba- vow bow in front of teachers they say is an impingement on religious freedoms so they say what what i'm that they're that they're being asked to perform a religious ritual to a secular teacher um and it's a really fascinating argument because it's brilliant um they know government policy on non-interference in religious affairs they know religion is the one thing they can't be asked to do they can certainly be asked to be subordinate they can certainly be asked to be more respectful so they're not going to win their argument on those fronts um but they know if they make the argument for religion, uh, that that's something that the government can argue bit- back with. So it becomes a standoff. Um, there's a, there's a compromise negotiated for a few days and then that doesn't really work out because and a school inspector comes in and demands another chico, Um and the students refuse, and in fact, they walk out because they refuse to perform the bow, ba- the, the and the students refuse to teach, so we get a lockout in the middle of Rangoon. Uh, we get schools uh, in Calcutta and other places saying, send your boys here, we won't make them perform this. Um, and we get this negotiation in the newspapers about what's really religion. Is it religion to perform this bow? Ba-? Uh, this bow is it not um and really the boys are doing the work of defining religion here because this is a a kind of ritual performance that had happened in lots of different spaces. It certainly would have been had to be performed in front of ministers of the royal court. Um it certainly would have had to been performed in lots of other contexts, including in in uh, business offices. Um, and there's a later debate about whether it should be performed in in business offices or not. So the boys are being pretty wise here about how to use this category of religion to their advantage and at the same time negotiating what that's going to mean in the colonial context. Um, and here it's a, it's a different problem. Um, so so the, the the or the sort of fight with the colonial um, officials here over what's religion spills over into later debates over whether folks should be allowed to wear shoes on the pagoda platform. And of course, this is the very famous moment in Burmese history that you know, nationalists were right about. This is the beginning and the end of colonialism. Once once we tell the Europeans they can't wear shoes on the pagoda platforms, then that's it. But what's interesting in, if you read the colonial reports and colonial records about that debate, is that not only are the Buddhist associations putting forward arguments that this is preservation of sasana, and that any shoes on the pagoda platforms are a threat to the sasana, but the colonial government has to carefully negotiate whether the performance of ritual has a specific meaning for everybody. Um, or whether different people who belong to different religions can perform different kinds of rituals. And so we get a negotiation again it's sasana they can't contest. Sasana is being constructed in this to say that Europeans can harm the sasana by walking on the pagoda platform with their shoes. So sasana is constructed in one way and yet religion is constructed differently because religion is the boundary at which um, you have autonomy inside and, and a lack of autonomy outside. The gov- The colonial government has the right to intervene right up to that boundary of what is religion and no right to intervene afterwards or Theoretically, um, no right to intervene afterwards. They've very much engaged with that category in other ways. Um, so it, it, there are these two categories do different things for the same group of people. Um, and they offer a means of negotiating power within the colonial context at the same moment that both of those categories are in flux. It's actually working on what's going to count as sasana and what's going to count as religion that is the operations of of negotiating both with the colonial state and producing Burmese society.
1: And this this is a significant moment because, um, as I understand it, you argue that... That religion acts as an homogenizing category for a type of government that um, that emerges um, in Burma in this this period, and then that that has political implications. Um, I don't know if you'd like to say anything more about that, but given that we're also short on time, perhaps you can mention briefly about what happens in the 1920s, because you argue mm-hmm. that the place of in colonial conflict changed from this period onwards?
0: I think it does. Um, you know, looking at the 1920 Rangoon University strike or, or the strike to, against the University Act, which is what it is in 1920 for the production of Rangoon University, um the discourse changes. Things have been changing a little bit uh, up to this point, but now the discourse is really a focused on a political concern to which Buddhism is an adjunct. The, the problem is not preservation of sasana, which it very much is in the decades prior. Now the problem is the political autonomy of a group of people um, and eventually their independence. Um, and so Buddhism continues to offer the metaphors, continues to offer the organizational structure, and that all of the organizations I'm talking, many of the organizations I'm talking about, and all of the schools will eventually become the mechanisms for nationalism. Uh, the, school- the Buddhist schools that are created become the nationalist schools. Um, the leaders that are trained up in these Buddhist organizations become the leaders in the nationalist movement. But the discourse has shifted about what's important, and nation becomes the thing that needs to be preserved, and sasana becomes an important aspect of nation. But that's a very different metaphysical orientation. Um, that's a very different orientation about what's important and real in the world. So the Rangoon University strike, um, the university students have all sorts of both Buddhist institutions and metaphors of Buddhism that are put forward, and yet they're Goals are not necessarily preservation of sasana, and I don't mean to say that 1920 is bright line in Burmese history in which the nation becomes the only thing that's important, and everything after that's nationalism, everything before that's sasana. And it's certainly no historian ever seen anything that bright. But um, sasana as a project becomes remains very important for a lot of people, and even as nationalism as a project is important for political independence. And at different moments throughout the 20th century, you can see people raising up the concern for the preservation of sasana in different ways. Again, in their own projects, redefining what sasana is going to mean, redefining it relative to political projects. But it, it, it continues to evolve in different projects and continues to be a concern that goes throughout the 20th and 21st centuries. But... I think by 1920 we're going to get nation as a form of identity that's trying to come onto its own and become the dominant mode of of identity um, from there forward. So that's you know 1920 ish is where I see this begin to sort of a tipping point from uh, one to the other.
1: How would someone who's interested in current affairs in what's going on in Burma or Myanmar today? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, get a better understanding of current events from reading your book?
0: I hope what people will take is not um, that this is a... uh, a perennial mechanism that sasana is always a concern of Bur- Burmese people, whoever that is. Um, and that preservation of sasana is the same as nation and nation drives these things. Um, I think that would be a really bad reading of this book. There are certainly contemporary people very concerned with the discourse of the process of the preservation of sasana and the preservation of Buddhism. But I think what you should take that's more useful out of this, or I hope is more useful out of, of my book, is that sasana is defined in the moment by the projects of the people who are worried about preserving it. And that those projects also come to define identity, who belongs and who doesn't belong. And that those are very fluid things. They can be redefined by the same practices of Burmese um, and by Buddhists at, as you're going along. So that. If you want to understand what's happening in the contemporary moment, what you need to do is a very careful analysis of how ha- of what it is, how it's being preserved, what is perceived to being preserved when you say when there's a discourse of needing to preserve Buddhism, what's actually at stake, what's being negotiated, what are the fault lines for the production of a discourse of sasana here, what are the fault lines for the production of identity here. And also be very conscious of the fact that those are continuously internally contested, that there are other voices out there trying to define sasana in different ways, trying to define identity in different ways, and be attentive to the mechanisms through which these discourses are being produced. Um, So be very attentive to those people who are offering multiple multiple. Uh, ideas about identity or sasana or nation within this. Because I think what's interesting in history is not, um, is not that Burmese nationalism is tied to Buddhism. That's very simple and very, very easy to sort of say. But what does Buddhism mean? Like, how is that constructed here? Um, and that sort of more careful attention to that also points out but it's potentially more hopeful that these things are in flux. Um, they have the potential to be changed in different ways by actors on the ground.
1: you've just been doing some more field work in perma and be interested to know what you're working on now and what we can look forward to.
0: Um, I'm working on uh, finishing with uh, with two colleagues in Ireland uh, a book manuscript on a really fun project. Uh, we work on a working-class Irishman born in Dublin who became a hobo, who became a sailor, and eventually gets himself ordained as a Buddhist monk in 1900 in Rangoon, and then goes on to be a bombastic uh, anti-colonial critic um, who is deeply against Christian missionaries, deeply against alcohol, and deeply against uh, British colonialism, and in fact gets uh, convicted of sedition for exactly that. And this tireless advocate of Buddhism who is deeply beloved in the Burmese countryside. Um, so we're working on his biography um, and he says outrageous things in lots of places so he's uh, great stories to tell um, but what the study of Dhammaloka uh, this figure has led me into is to see how deeply cosmopolitan and internetworked um, folks at the margins were in this time period so the next project that I'm working on the, the research for right now is interested in networks between Buddhists patrons, um, donation networks, uh, monks from people who were not necessarily in the center in many different ways. So I'm interested in Sino Burmese. I'm interested in sailors and people who come from port cities and monks who travel between different port cities, particularly I'm really interested in Dewey and Tavoy and connections with Dewey, Dewey people in, uh, Rangoon and Penang and Singapore and Bangkok, um, uh, i 'm interested in sort of looking at the ways in which these people and their networks came to define what Buddhism uh, in the colonial period or in would would be like how is it that their work comes to define this, and also the ways in which they were deeply, deeply cosmopolitan. Um, multi-ethnic ethnicity is, and Buddhism are constructed in very different ways about these these connections from people from very different places and come together in interesting collaborations. So that's what I'm into right now. Um, I no, don't know where it leads yet uh, so I'm sort of in the fun beginning stages of all of that.
1: I hope it remains fun for you and I'm confident that whatever comes out of that work, it's going to be as fascinating and as, as detailed as this book which for me personally really filled in um, a lot of elements of stories and provided a lot more depth and, and color to events and issues that I knew about but I realized in, in reading your book only superficially so so thank you very much for writing the book and also for speaking to us today on, on new books in Southeast Asian Studies
0: Well thank you for the interview it's been a lot of fun
1: and so I've been speaking to Alicia Turner about her book, Saving Buddhism, The Impermanence of Religion in Colonial Burma, which was published in 2014 by University of Hawaii Press. I'm Nick Cheesman, and I hope you'll join me again on new books in Southeast Asian Studies.
0: Hey, like the tenderloes. Hey, like the tenderloes.